0: My life story is a story of good enoughs. <laughs> There's something like intensely gratifying about dreaming something and then
1: willing it into reality. Hello and welcome to Workle's happiness podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. In this edition of the Workplace Happiness podcast, I'm really pleased to be joined by Rob Lydiard. Now, Rob started off his business career as a lawyer. Uh, He worked for Eversheds LLP in London and Shanghai, but he left that to become an entrepreneur and has set up a fantastic uh, app called Yapster, which helps businesses better communicate with their employees. Now, I'm really keen to find out from Rob all there is to know about being a corporate lawyer, but more importantly, why he decided to change direction. Rob uh, it's great to have you on the podcast let's start off with your early days before you went into the law Um, what were you like at school oh wow um excitable
0: um I I played it's funny actually so I I my 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 mum was secretary to an accountant right and so her dream for me since I was a little boy was to be her boss and so she sort of groomed me out in Thurrock in Essex to, um, you know, be overly confident, sort of precocious, um, way beyond my actual talent and in pretty much all things. So I sort of played rugby to a decent level, but not, not quite good enough to make it because actually my ambition outweighed my talent and then similarly academically. I used to love to write and tried quite hard at school, but I wouldn't say it came hugely naturally to me. So I was I was a, a trier um, at school, probably more sizzle than steak. I would suggest across sort of across all, all things, but generally quite a um, quite a quite a happy boy. If 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 average. <laughs>
1: And so, when were you young? Apart from either being a professional rugby player or something else, what did you what did you want to do? Did you, I mean, were you clear in your own mind about what life would hold for you? I mean, clearly, your mum, from what you said, had aspirations, but but what about you? What did you think? Oh yeah, I really want to do that when I leave school.
0: So I'm thirty nine, turning forty in September. I think. Um, I think the way my mum and dad raised me is probably quite similar to a lot of people my age and I don't know, five years either side or actually probably quite a few years behind as well. In that I always wanted to do something special. I think I was sort of raised told that I was special in some way. I don't think I really knew what I wanted to do sort of specifically, but I knew I wanted it to be something that made me feel good about what I was doing, doing something with meaning so you know like when I was very young I my mum and dad were involved in sort of local politics you know like councillors and things and I thought well politics sounds quite rather grand and that sounds exciting that might make me feel cool and mum and dad proud and then um, uh, and then I, I, I got quite into the idea of wanting to be a, a lawyer and I think probably for the sort of for the same possibly for the same reasons um, and then became a lawyer and 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 all the clients seem to be having more fun and making more money. So I wanted to be a business person. I think that's largely driven most of my life. I'm sure we'll get into it. It's only been in recent years that I've um, perhaps understood a little bit more about the sort of things one needs to do in order to feel that sense of meaning. But I think I was always looking for purpose. I was always looking to feel proud of what I was doing with my time on this earth and the limited talent God gave me.
1: And so um, just talk to us about going to university um, and picking law. So, what what A levels did you do?
0: So, I did um, English literature, history, and politics um, because I was not wildly numerate, but I like to talk, as you as you already know, Mark. <laughs> um, I um, I actually it was interesting. I worked at I worked at Gap in the late nineties, early noughties in Lakeside in Thurrock, and I was working on the fitting room. Chatting to anybody that came through, really. But I was talking to a woman once who was trying on jeans, and her long uh, her her husband was was waiting, and he started chatting to me while where we were, she was trying on a, a new pair, and it his name was a guy called Richard, and it turned out he was a corporate lawyer at a firm that was then called um Denton Hall, which merged with a firm called Wild Sap, which is now which then became Denton Wild now S N R Denton, as all of the legal industry is sort of globalised over the intervening. 20 years and this guy was either a newly qualified or a trainee lawyer at the time he gave me his business card because when i told him that i was at the a-levels i was doing and i was sort of curious about law um and he um he went to hull university and he laughed when he told me because i didn't know whether i didn't know which universities were good or bad really other than cambridge which i probably didn't have the confidence to apply to and he said hull university is not a great university but it is a university where some law firms were happy to recruit from including the one that i ended up joining and i thought oh, geez that is that is cool as hell right this guy's a corporate lawyer he's gonna buy me a sandwich um and talk to me about how one becomes a corporate lawyer and um and and i did actually take him up and went there because again my mum had groomed me from birth right to like see an opportunity and grab it with both hands <laughs> and uh, so i went up to see this chap and he just talked about the, the, the law schools that they recruited from, and it turned out there were quite a lot of actually quite accessible universities, and so I ended up going to UEA, University of East Anglia. It's got a good law school, um, not top, 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 but, but, but good enough, and that was the key. My, my life story is a story of good enoughs <laughs> so And what- uh, went there and, that's, and then they, I, I applied from
1: there. So tell us about doing law. When I was at university, uh, people doing law had to work really hard and didn't seem to have as much fun as the rest of us. Is that, that true when you went?
0: Uh, yes, yeah. And I, 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 um, I did actually work really hard. I didn't get a first class degree. I really wanted one. I got, I got a, a sort of highish two one. My view now is, if you're going to get a highish two one, you might as well get a low two one and have more fun. But um, but I think with law, you do actually need to read the underlying material generally. I think there are other courses where if you've got raw intellectual horsepower, you can, you can get the principles and then score top grades. I think in law, that's less so. You sort of either understand the case, you know the cases or you don't. You can follow the logic or you can't. And some of that just does require some time spent, you know, reading that material unless you're um, sort of goodwill hunting type didactic you know blessed with that type of memory so yeah no i did i did work really hard i mean, i'm being sort of perhaps false modest i like i um you know i was i i i I really wanted to go there i sort of got in there i didn't get the grades i wanted at a level but again i they, they let me in um i think i got aac and uh, i needed aab and they let me in anyway and um yeah and i spent loads of time in the library i'm sure i studied wildly inefficiently you know like to put if you put in as many hours as i did probably should be able to get the grade that you're going for but i didn't and it was a good lesson in grit so what would you say to anybody who was
1: thinking of going to study law
0: my advice would be um oh, oh that is a big question um my my advice would be that it depends. If you're going to take on debt to go there, meaningful debt, and if that's going to make a difference to your life chances, depending on the, you know, where you're from and the, the circumstances that you that you're in, I would say yeah. don't do it if you think it's your ticket to being a corporate lawyer um, without doing the preparatory work. So um, it turns out, like most things in life, including in in business, you um, you can massively increase your chances by getting to know the right people and you know like people like to say oh, it's not what you know it's who you know there's some truth in that but like with the internet you can get to know pretty much anyone and m- lots of people that have been very successful in life are surprisingly open to helping people up because folks that have had tremendous success generally can f- generally recognize they had some help getting there and they usually therefore want to sort of pay the universe back for that and if you reach out to successful people you'd be surprised that of 100 successful people a higher percentage than you think will give you a hand if they can do so and so i would say if you want to be a lawyer a corporate lawyer you probably should go and meet some lawyers before you sign up for three years of pain at law school and the associated cost of doing that because if, if you
1: if, yeah if you I'm don't sorry, then there's sorry. no point doing the work and i was going to say if you had your time again would you do law again no what would you do
0: Uh, I would do um, I would do accounting or more likely I would do general management in a trading business that was going to give me financial qualifications. That's what I would do. I'd go and work in I'd go and be a general manager, probably somewhere of an operating business with a with a doing a minor in finance.
1: And so when you finished your law degree, we know we know. That you went in to be a corporate lawyer on to be a corporate lawyer but but just reflect a little on you're 21 you've got your degree was it always obvious that you were going to go and work as a corporate lawyer or did you mull over other things and why what was your route into corporate (laughs) law
0: i don't know if you've got a very good researcher or if you could just take one look at me and and know that i'd have done something dopey in between i actually took a year out to try and play in a band Cause I thought that would be fabulous and similarly would help me fulfill my life mission to do something wonderful. But again, it turns out that I'm a pretty crap guitarist and, and uh, not particularly good at picking bandmates from a talent perspective either, but it was great fun. We bought a transit van and decked it up and booked our own gigs and went playing. It was, it was, that was quite an entrepreneurial experience actually. So no, I did that then realized that um, being a struggling musician is actually not quite as fulfilling as one might imagine and went
1: back to law school. And so um, you went back to, to law school to to complete, to a law conversion? To do or, the,
0: yeah, to do the, the LP, the legal practice school, the course that you do after being an undergrad, but before being a trainee solicitor.
1: And that takes a year, another year?
0: Yeah, it takes one year, and then you do two years on the job training.
1: Okay, so you're now getting towards your mid-twenties, and are you still thinking to yourself, it's corporate law for me? um. So yeah I mean sort of but remember my my my
0: motivating force was to do something that I thought was cool that I was proud of that was going to be remunerative so I thought that was going to be law but I didn't really know um so yes all the time up until I really joined the law firm and it was then that I joined the law firm that what hit me was that um uh, it's a I don't want to sound dismissive because I've got wonderful friends in law, and there are people that love being lawyers, and they're very, very successful in every measure. Good families, nice houses, good holidays, whatever. Right. So I'm not dismissing it. There are also also a tremendous number of people that don't like that profession that shouldn't have gone there, but couldn't take the pay cuts or weren't willing to take the pay cuts to do to go and do something they found more fulfilling. And as I said at the beginning, I'm not like crazy smart. I don't have like I don't have very, very good attention to detail. I'm a excitable bloke. You know, I like to get deals done, not necessarily manage the, the risk down to nothing on those transactions. So seemed unlikely I was ever going to really love being a lawyer. So the question was, could I grind it out for the money and the title? And the folks that seemed to be grinding it out didn't, didn't clear my bar of, is that a wonderful life? Is that a life well-lived? Is that using the talent and the opportunities that one's been given, which is what's always motivated me? And, and my conclusion was no. And so from that point, quite early on in my training, I was then thinking, oh crap, I've picked the wrong thing here. I now need to get from this into something that is going to be meaningful, but I had no sense of what meaning felt like. So, and we can get into it, but then started a sort of 10-year semi-entrepreneurial odyssey. <laughs>
1: So uh, b- before we come on to that, although it might overlap a little, um, you went to work in Shanghai for Sheds.
0: Yes. So so I was lucky that, um, yeah, they the, the, the law, legal industry was internationalising. Um, I found the partner that had come in to build the China practice. His name's Andrew Halper. Wonderful guy um he'd been like a diplomat he was a Canadian guy and he, he was this sort of swashbuckling Chinese lawyer and and so I went and said to him um I'm really interested in the phenomenon that is the Chinese economic miracle and this is 2005-6 at the time and I said um do you think you're ever going to have sort of training seats over in your you know your emerging Chinese part of the firm and uh, and I sort of campaigned for them to open a training seat there took it upon myself to try and learn a bit of Chinese most of which I've forgotten now and Andrew Halpert who's massive credit sort of got the firm to to agree this is pre-financial crisis and so I guess they sort of felt like they could afford it and yeah I lobbied and then applied and, and got that seat so I did six months um yeah six months out in out in Shanghai. Um, Did you enjoy it? I loved being in Shanghai. Um, Although this tells you what a lousy entrepreneur I am. I was out in China in 2007, pre-financial crisis and it looked to me like all of the opportunities were done I mean it's so absurd it's so preposterous to think you could be in Shanghai in your mid-20s and not be able to find any opportunities you could have started anything at that time and been successful just through like just riding GDP growth but yeah it was an amazing experience I went out there was a whole bunch of other young lawyers that were out there all at the same time so we had loads of fun learned a bit I did some work for Coca-Cola as a sort of as a young lawyer working for the partner that was out there yeah, it was amazing, and then came back and 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 qualified into private equity in
1: London. So, talk us through the the journey from there, Rob. Talk us through uh, how you went from uh, that law background into ultimately setting up yep stuff
0: So, um, so so there's a type of financing called private equity, which I know you'll know well, Mark. But for listeners that don't know, so private equity is where um, um, wealthy people put their money into um, into it, it, through managers like a fund will go and buy companies um, they're not they don't list them they're sort of private private companies and they'll they'll typically um, back managers they'll go buy businesses and the managers will own a relatively small but meaningful percentage of those businesses and they'll um, they, they typically borrow a lot of money so that the returns are what's called leveraged and then they'll, they'll um, grow those businesses acquire other businesses And then typically those businesses will be sold in three to five years from the first investment. And so as a baby private equity lawyer, I was seeing those transactions. And so that was my first exposure to really entrepreneurial people, really entrepreneurial executives, actually, as opposed to sort of mad startup founders, which was a later chapter in my life. And but they all seem to be having more fun than me. A lot of them actually came from sort of, I would say, like upwardly mobile working class backgrounds like mine. or sort of lower middle class type backgrounds, you know, the aspirational class and they seem to be having more fun and i was thinking this is ridiculous we all come from the same place and i'm trapped by my education you don't seem to have the benefit of the same education and yet you're making more money and having a better time this is this is this is wrong this is unfair uh, so i left in 2009 almost exactly uh, one year to the day of qualifying and i started this little consulting business which is you know it's not a very good consulting business because i was 25 and i didn't know how to even practice the law let alone do anything else so i don't know what anyone was going to get me to consult on But I was quite lucky that um, the legal industry was deregulating at the time. Yeah, because like a bit like um, opticians now. So younger listeners won't remember a time where there wasn't such a thing as Specsavers. But not that long ago, optician, the only people that could sell you glasses and be opticians were qualified opticians. And then when the optician industry deregulated, it got rolled up by these sort of corporate brands and it meant they could build brands and in theory give customers better price and a better experience. And and the government tried to do the same thing with the legal sector because traditionally only qualified lawyers could own law firms. And that meant that they could rather take the piss out of you with bad service standards and high prices. So the legal industry was beginning to deregulate in 2009. And that meant that non-lawyers could own law firms for the first time. And so they were coming in and making an awful lot of noise, brash entrepreneurial types, ruffling legal feathers saying we're going to come in and sell legal services to big and small clients alike using technology um but they they weren't lawyers generally speaking that's the whole point and so they didn't find it that easy to talk to and sell to lawyers and so i kind of became a sales broker sort of by accident because i um I could speak fluent lawyer but I wanted to be a, a player <laughs> and so I started working with this business called Exigent which was an outsourcing technology enabled outsourcing business that that would take work from from UK based legal clients and then partner with South African lawyers because South Africa is on the same time zone similar language and legal culture but significantly different currency in terms of currencies for purchasing power and so you could hire very, very good South African lawyers for significantly less than the cost of domestic lawyers. And in many cases, the domestic lawyers didn't want to do the type of work that we were talking about in any case. Things like reviewing tens of thousands of documents to look for evidence in litigation, for example. And so um, I freelanced a bit um, for this business, exigent, helping them um, sell these outsourcing deals to big corporates and to small Um, from that i ended up um, coming into contact with a big outsourcing business called capita that was very big a few years ago it shrunk significantly since but capita decided to come into the legal market under the same logic and they appointed me to to do a similar job really to broker between them and corporates and then that took me up to 2014 and um as you will well know from your background, the the big the big companies with lots of employees are the ones that tend to have the most complicated legal functions and the biggest legal spend. And so, doing that work, it brought me into contact with big companies like um, Marks and Spencer, the big retailer. And the, he's retired now, but there was a guy called um, uh, Robert Ivans, who was the head of legal at Marks and Spencer at the time, and a woman named Claire Wardle, who was the general counsel for Kingfisher, which owns B and Q. And so, I was talking to both of them about. Um, uh, introducing technology and cost savings in legal neither they were both very polite but didn't actually do anything with it it wasn't you know it was it was just a rounding error on savings compared to what you could do in one of those scale retailers with other business initiatives for taking less risk but i didn't know that at the time um and i I, and in the course of working with them and talking to them about how those businesses work trying to look for legal innovation opportunities i just discovered that in, in m case, they had 85,000 employees, but only 15,000 company email addresses. So I was like to Robert, how, how, so how does management speak to the other 70,000 people? And he said, well, I don't know, really. I mean, I'm in the legal department, I'm not in ops. Um, poster and Cascade and man and woman on horseback. You know, like I, it, was, it, was, it was just interesting. It was just not something that particularly been really considered. And so um, I went and looked, just went into some stores shopping and just chatted to some of the people. And it was clear that they were all beginning to build their own local networks on their own smartphones, just like little groups of colleagues talking to each other. And because I had been a lawyer and was still working in that space, I knew that the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation was coming. And and, and I thought it was gonna be a real problem that big companies were continuing to sort of unofficially, but deliberately because the, the administrators were generally managers. Um, we're using these consumer networks that were giving all of their colleagues personal phone numbers away to every other colleague that joined which is personal data and technically under the gdpr that you know that's arguably a, a problem and so um so i thought crikey i think there's an opportunity here to create a secure mobile network for these folks that haven't ever been given a corporate email which it turns out is about 80 percent of the world's frontline workforce which is about two billion people out of three and uh called my co-founder Craig who became my co-founder he's the cleverest man I know he did go to Cambridge and he did get all the top grades and didn't have to work that hard to do it can build anything you can imagine I said to him mate I think half the economy runs on like consumer apps fancy having a go at building something they can afford and control and um and off we went we we raised a bit of money from a guy I went to university with and we've been suffering
1: ever since (laughs) and so 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 Tell me, what's it like for people out there who are thinking, I think I've got a good idea, and they're thinking of checking in their day job and doing what you do. What's it like? What are the good things and what are the challenging things?
0: Um the the enormous sense of pride you feel at a dinner party or a family bash, someone you don't know, like a friend of a friend, when they ask you what you do and you you say oh you know I work for a really small technology company and they say what do you do and you say oh well like it's you know mobile messaging for frontline people and they say oh, that's pretty cool who do you work for and you say Cafe Nero, Krispy Kreme, Next, Brewdog, Marsden's you know you reel off these brands and you're not trying to be a muppet but you know you, you obviously know that they're brands that they know um, that passes that test I told you as a child Yeah, like and there's loads of bad stuff it will come on to but that feels good it's it's like mum mum look at this painting i did you know or this poem that i wrote or this medal that i just won there's something like it's intensely gratifying about dreaming something and then willing it into reality as you as you well know from 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 the things that you've done um that is amazing and i i um i think everybody should have a bit of that in their lives it doesn't need to be starting a business. You can write songs or do painting, and there's lots of things you can do that give you that sense of pride. I'm just about to have my first child, and my 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 friends that are ahead of me, in that, and they say, yeah, my friends that are ahead of me, they say, listen, it's love. It's really cute how you talk about your business, but wait till you wait till you're growing a little human being. <laughs> but that yeah, that sense of pride is, is 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 really magical. The 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 hard part of it is, um, it, it's much easier to have a vision than to execute a vision. And in the early days, but probably forever, but very much in the early days, every night you go to bed with the, your reality being materially worse than your vision. And you have to you have to live with and explain the delta between the two. And you've raised money. Sometimes you've hired people, you've sold things to customers and you've sold them the vision in good faith and then you've delivered them your product or service. And when there's a gap between those two things that can take you to some terrifically dark places. And also when, when it's hard, you, you don't know if you're failing because your vision is wrong or because it's not finished yet. And that is incredibly difficult as well, because then you have to decide whether to go forward or to go back or sideways. <laughs> and there's no signposts.
1: <laughs> what does it take to keep going then?
0: Ah. Oh um uh, there's this thing i love called the stockdale paradox that um jim jim the author jim collins um uh uh made popularized i can't remember what collins book it was i don't know if it's good to great or something like that it's one of those very famous sort of 90s early noughties jim collins management books stockdale paradox this guy stockdale was um a long-standing prisoner of war and he got captured by the enemy and he was in this this camp, this prison, this, this prisoner of war camp for, for years. Like people starved, various people came in and, and didn't survive, but he did and led uh, quite a large group of people to survive as well. And he says that the people that didn't make it were the were the ones that the um the optimists. <laughs> he said, because the thing about the optimists is they would say, come on, come on, chaps. Let's keep it together. We're going to be out next month or we're going to be out next quarter. And of course, next month comes, next quarter comes, next year comes and you're still not out. And at some point that breaks the spirit of the optimist. And what Stockdale said is he said, um, you have to be willing to psychologically to survive that experience. You have to be willing to peer into the darkness and face the unadulterated truth of your situation. Right. So you have to be you have to have the courage and the willingness to face the absolute truth of your reality without ever losing the faith that you'll prevail in the end. Amazing, right? And so I think it's the same. I think it's like, I think it's the same thing. I think you just say, God, this is, this sucks. (laughs) But, and, and all of this stuff is bad and it is bad. And I'm not going to tell myself it's not bad because I need to fix it. But when I fix it, it, things are going to turn and if other bad stuff happens, which it probably will, I'm going to fix that too.
1: <laughs> and so how how do you feel now, sort of eight years of being an entrepreneur? Would you say to people out there going to do it? Would, would you, I mean, what advice would you give people? Um, I
0: would say, I would sort of probably, I would probably, if I was going to offer that advice and who am I to give such advice but like i would say if i was going to give the advice it would probably be slightly broader than entrepreneurship and say whatever you think you're calling might be if if you really feel that in your bones then you should do that and like if you really really believe you should be an artist then you should be an artist and that means you might need to do part-time work in addition to that to pay your rent and feed your children and do all those other things that you also need to do because you also if you want to be a parent or whatever and you want to live in civilized society you probably do need to be able to pay for shelter Um, if you don't want to suffer for your art or your purpose that's okay it probably means you haven't actually found your true purpose it's something you kind of want to do but you don't want to do enough to suffer and that's okay there's no shame in that um so i would probably say the same for an entrepreneurial person i would say like you know what why is it that you want to do this and if you don't know maybe the best way to find out is to go do it and if you go do it and 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 it speaks to you in a way then then yeah like crack on if you do it and it doesn't speak to you then like the water's cold get out of it it's fine put like wrap, a t- wrap yourself in a towel <laughs> and, and and go back inside there's no shame in that but but yeah like so it, it just depends I, I i think a lot of people have um particularly people with my type of parents and my type of up, upbringing have concluded they should be entrepreneurs because they feel like they were raised and destined to do something wonderful and they're not really passionate about products or service or business or customers. And then I think, Oh, there's probably something else you can do or get that will give you that same feeling. That's just not going to be as hard as this, or that's really patronizing. There are lots of things that are hard or easy, depending on how much, how into it you are. But um, I think pop like entrepreneurship has been so celebrated by sort of popular culture now that I do rather think it's luring in folks that are not that interested in business in truth.
1: And so how do you see your future? 40 now what does the future look like
0: uh well i i I want to be like my dad with money that's my that's my mission in life my mission in life is to be as good a guy as he is um the where where my son we're expecting a son where my son feels the way about me that i feel about my dad and i would just love to be able to afford to turn left on the plane
1: (laughs) that's all i want that's all i that want sounds, yeah sounds like a good so you're not you're not looking to be the next elon musk
0: no i you're don't not looking I, to buy no. twitter, twitter. Uh, i mean like i really admire i really admire those entrepreneurs um i don't know what like i don't know how successful or not i would be in a market that was just you know right time right place um you know Elon Musk's first venture was a business called Zip2 at the beginning of the sort of dot com, like just before the dot com boom but at the birth of the internet and then he founded a business called X.com which merged into um PayPal and sort of Peter Thiel and Elon Musk businesses they came together um and they did fantastically well they had to really grind and hustle but of course they they created um email money at the same time as eBay had just got to massive scale and they um, their home run came from providing payments for auctions on eBay and eBay could never quite get their own payments, right. For reasons I won't bore you with. And, um, so like they did well, but they were also in the right time and the right place. And then, you know, Elon Musk's amazing thing is that each win that he's had, he's then rolled into a bigger vision and then he's, he's executed it really well. Um, I don't think I have his talent or vision at all but I also have never um, found myself riding like a tidal wave. And so I think part of entrepreneurial success is situational. It does depend on the wave that you put your surfboard on that, you know, like some of it's the skill of the surfer and some of it is the strength of the wave. And, I, 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 and so I don't know. I don't know what waves are in the ocean ahead of me. Um, might catch a mega one and, and I might surprise myself. So I don't know. I sort of, I feel like you got to make that. You can tell I love a crap metaphor. I think like you, you just gotta, you gotta do the best job on the wave you're riding. You can't stress out about if the waves are better in Bali, you know?
1: And one last question for you, Rob. Um, obviously you do lots of work with businesses You help them with their communication, uh, with frontline workers for Yabster. Um, But what's your view about the future of work? How do you think work's going to shape up over the next 10 years?
0: Well, this is why I love your your work. Um, It's how we connect it. Like I I think that um, people are telling us in the workplace that they want different things from the working experience, actually. And what I suggested about wanting meaning from the things I do in life, um, I think is broadly reflective of the generations that have followed me into the workplace. Different details, but nuances. And so... um, our mission at yapster is to make work meaningful we say brackets or at least not suck and um and and we think that um great leaders can can do that right great leaders can sort of suit can energize the people that are working for them for a long time or a short time to feel connected with the people that they work with and the thing that they're doing to make that time sort of pleasant enjoyable and ultimately productive and profitable and so I think the future of work is becoming more like the recent past or maybe like 50-year past of politics, if that makes sense, in that like, I think that employees have moved from being sort of captured souls to more like consumers, where consumers can just switch product affiliations whenever they want. I feel like employees can rather switch employers in the same way, and so we're having to lead them in the same way as we might market to the general public recognizing that there are low switching costs for the customer and that's a bit like chasing votes as a politician in a funny sort of way like, i'm not saying we should all be sort of you know doing some of the disingenuous stuff that some model, model politicians have been guilty of but the good ones and a lot of them are still really good and sincere sort of have this deference for the voter you know and they know they can only achieve great things in society by getting voters to follow them and then building consensus amongst the their fellow leaders of society and politicians and you know and then hopefully they'll change the world sort of through that and i feel like the the modern workplace is much more like that right you have to set out your stall get your electorate i hire people that buy into your vision and then you've got to bloody well lead them and if you don't they'll leave or they'll at least do nothing (laughs) um and i think that's really interesting i think that that's going to last the remainder of my career Um, and teaching leaders to really lead whether you use digital communications like the app store or not is super interesting it's really interesting how you got like some quite old school leaders now spend their lives going around kissing babies and shaking hands and they feel great about it because every room they walk into lights up but they forget they've got 1600 rooms that they're responsible for right and they visit 50 a year or 100 a year and they've got 100% labor turnover so like the things that they're physically doing are making zero difference in terms of like the, the the whole of the workforce um and when you start showing them those numbers they're like oh crikey yeah that that is like trying to win a modern democratic election just handing out printouts at one train station in the country
1: so and that's anyway. rob why they should all use yapster or, or,
0: or, or something similar mark
1: Rob, thank you so much for your time uh, on this podcast. Uh, Thanks for sharing your journey from uh, corporate law to being uh, a cutting edge entrepreneur. uh, And we wish you every success. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.